Thank you, and thank you um, for inviting me and then giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about hair cell leukemia and the new and emerging therapies, and thank you guys for coming so early to hear about hair cell leukemia in the 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. So appreciate that. Uh, so my talk actually overlaps in large degree with what Jackie just presented. Uh, so, but I'll go a little bit detail of uh, some of the areas and then share some of the new data with the bimirafenib combination therapy. So these are my disclosures. So this is what uh, Dr. Barrientos just presented about the first-line therapy, and then you may argue that with such a you know, striking progression-free survival, the very few relapses that we're seeing, whether especially with the cladribin rituximab combination, um, the why do we need to? Is there any room for improvement in hair cell leukemia, especially in the frontline therapy or in the relapse setting? But there are limitations, as I argue. The first-line therapy with the cladribin or pentostatin, you know, uh, even though they do get very high response rates of a 60 to 80 percent complete response and 10 to 20 percent of the partial response, so, but neither of these regimen are uh, not curative. So, and then in combination with the rituximab, that we are getting a deeper response, and in some of these cases of MRD negative CR, and a very few relapses are happening. But again, due to very favorable course of these patients, typically that it is hard to say whether these, those combinations are still curative either. So we still yet to have a curative regimen at this time. And with the cladribin alone or the pentostatin, then the patients still do relapse about 30% of the time, 30 to 40% of the time, uh, over time that the, these pa patients will experience relapse and requiring a second or subsequent line of a therapy, which typically had been another course of appearing analogs, which then can result in further immunosuppressions and other complications that can uh, result from those. And as I mentioned before, the high rate of MRD positivity still results in after uh, still uh, using the single-agent cladribin or pentostatin. So the, what is uh, the downside of the subsequent or the multiple treatment of the, uh, the cladribin or pentostatin, as we've done in many years now at this point, is immunosuppression is one of the main things, and then possibly the uh, increased risk of a second malignancy due to further immunosuppression and then exposure to this type of a chemotherapy. So infections due to prolonged T-cell suppressions are common, and T-cells can be suppressed for quite some time, too. So even though they can recover their counts after cladribin or pentostatin, a single course of those, the T-cell recovery, if you were to follow the CD4 count and the recovery of those T-cell subsets, it can take over a year or in some cases over a couple, uh, several years. We don't typically measure them in clinics, so we may underappreciate them. I think the further uh, the population-based studies and then retrospective analysis are showing that there, are, there could be prolonged T-cell suppression, which then can have a consequences in these patients of uh, infectious complications. And these, uh, the table here is uh, uh, illustrating some of the incidences of second malignancies. And these are difficult to interpret, actually, because you know, as we know, that having one leukemia or the lymphoma uh, can increase risk of a second cancer there, too. Uh, and, and so it's, it's a little bit unclear whether the diagnosis of hair cell leukemia is driving the second malignancies or is a repeat exposure to cladribin or pentostatin are driving the second malignancies. But there are various, the frequencies uh, as listed here is 7.5 to 22 percent. So I think Jack nicely kind of laid out the water, the rationale for targeting BRF uh, in hair cell leukemia. So the original data did come from uh, Tiazzi's group and Dr. Fellini's in Italy, and reporting the very high incidence of BRF uh, B600E mutation in hair cell leukemia. This mutation is not unique to hair cell leukemia. It's actually present in many different cell tumors as well, and in some of the other B cell lymphomas too, as we now appreciate them. But they are such a highly prevalent uh, the mutation in hair cell leukemia, over 90% of the case. It's probably about close to 95 to 96 percent of the time in the classical hair cell leukemia that will carry the mutation of BRF B600E. 
So not only that, in the, in the same uh, the paper, seminal paper, they were able to show, and in the previous generations of paper too, I think we did appreciate that the ref and the MEP kinase pathways were constitutively activated in hairs of leukemia too. So the combinations of those obviously do make sense. And as Jackie kind of alluded earlier, that in the, such a high prevalence in almost all patients having hairs of leukemia uh, that suggests that the, uh, the mutation itself is involved in pathogenesis. So the Omar Abdul Wahab and MSK and then Steve Chung, and we actually then collected the patient samples uh, to analyze um, the whether, where does the mutation occurs. Um, and there are some questions about the origin of a hairy cell leukemia as well. That we're, uh, so if we believe this mutation is in such an early or the driver mutations, where in the process the mutation actually occurs. So we actually sorted out uh, different sort, uh, the stages of the hairy cell leukemia, the stem cells to mature hairy cell, uh, mature hairy cells. And then we reported out that this mutation is actually present in hematopoietic stem cells in a very early progenitors, again, uh, supporting the idea that this mutation is an early event. And then targeting this mutation can result in hopefully a deeper response and then lead to cure for these patients without exposure to repeated course of the chemotherapy or any exposure to chemotherapy. So that's what led to our, uh, the U.S. multicenter study, phase two study of vemurafenib as a monotherapy in patients with a relapse refractor hair cell leukemia. Um, and, uh, Dr. Barrientos and Dr. Rye from LIJ also participated in this study as many centers around the country as well. And then simultaneously, Italian study also was going at the same time, and then we reported the result together. They did actually have a very slightly different study design because these were two independent studies that kind of, the, uh, that kind of led to uh, initiation at a different time point. So this is a U.S. center uh, study design, which was that we designed to the, the patients will get three months of initial therapy of a nine, 960 milligram twice daily dosing, which is actually the dosing that's approved for melanoma patients, relapsed melanoma patients. But you know, at the time when we were designing the study, we actually didn't know what dose will be sufficient or uh, whether we need to use a high dose or whether we could a lower dose. In our study, we took the concept of uh, targeting or the inhibiting the mutations or pathways strong early on to, uh, to, uh, to lead to less relapse rates perhaps and less chance for resistance, which is the rationale for choosing 960 milligram twice daily dosing. So the patients... Um, um, uh, started the dosing at one month. We had a uh, research uh, study, the bone marrow biopsy, to help us assess how quickly that we are re getting the response on vimurafenib monotherapy, but the patients continue the therapy regardless of the response at one month for at least a three-month duration. At the end of the three months, the disease uh, response was assessed based on the bone marrow biopsy and then uh, CBCs. And uh, in those patients who had a residual disease or partial response, they were allowed to receive up to additional three cycles of vemurafenib, uh, so up to six maximum cycles of the therapy. At the time, the six, uh, after six cycles, that these patients had stopped the therapy and then on their observation. Importantly, we actually, when we designed the study, we did allow retreatments, although we didn't kind of anticipate what the relapse rate would be or the response rate would be, um, that we wanted to see then leave the options for those patients who relapse after uh, getting the six or three to six months of a therapy. If they relapse, they were allowed to receive amirafenib again. So eligibility criteria is a typical for relapse hair cell leukemia. So they had to be either intolerant or refractory to uh, pure analog-based therapy, such as cladribine or pentostatin, uh, or relapse within two years of initial pure analog-based therapy. These are the refractory patients. If you were to use a cladribine or pentostatin, again, these are uh, not likely to be responders and or patients who had a, two or greater relapses. And they need to meet the hematologic parameters to indicate the therapy uh, as listed here. 
So this is probably very hard to see, that this is a baseline patient characteristics uh, of both studies. Uh, the one on the left is showing the Italian study. The one on the right is showing the U.S. study. The patient populations are quite similar. This is about 30 patients in each cohort in Italy and the U.S. Uh, these are, again, the relapsed refractory patients with a morphologic disease and heresal leukemia. Various degree of a cytopenia, because they need to have at least one uh, linear cytopenia, but they do not need to have all three uh, line sounds, such as neutrophils or the hemoglobin or platelets. So this is a summary of the clinical outcome in the, and I should actually mention in the uh, Italian study, the study design was slightly different in the sense that they actually received the bemirapinib at the same dose, 960 milligram, at four months duration, and they stopped the therapy. Um, so slightly different duration of a therapy, in ours again was a three to six month, and the Italian study was a four months. So this is the U.S. study, the response rate, number of patients were 24 uh, in our study at the time of report, and then uh, all patients responded with 100% response rate, which was remarkable in this setting. This is, again, the patients who had, were refractory uh, to clodribin or pentostatin or intolerant. Uh, however, complete response rate is only about 40%, so and the majority of the response was partial response. Uh, to 60%. So partial response patients, having said that, had all, in order to meet the definition criteria, they had all hematologic recovery. So the uh, no longer cytopenic, no, uh, the neutropenia, uh, anemia, and dermocytopenia all resolved in those patients, but they did have a residual morphologic evidence of hairy cells in the bone marrow, uh, thus meeting the criteria for partial response. The graph on the below is showing the, the time to recovery, the what we can expect from the vemurapine monotherapy in terms of the, how fast the cytopenia is to recover, and that we do know that in the plate are the first one to recover, so when we actually start the therapy that we can actually discuss within a week or two, that we would definitely do see the platelet counts going up. So it's a very early response early on uh, with the platelet. Anemia and neutropenia do take a little bit longer to recover, so usually between four weeks or so. So typical time, kind of similar to kind of what we are seeing with the chemotherapy-based regimens, uh, that's the time to recover for uh, the anemia, uh, anemia and neutropenia. So this is a busy slide, and this is kind of uh, the, it's also in the, the uh, our publication with, uh, which we jointly do together with the Italian group. So. Like I said, all 24 patients uh, responded in either the complete response and partial response. So I guess kind of the one thing to highlight is those uh, cross mark, uh, which is to indicate the relapse rate. So after getting the therapy for three to six months, and we did not see the difference in patients who got three months of a therapy or more than three months, who's so up to six months of a therapy, the different relapse rates, although most of the patients only received the three months of a therapy. So median follow-up at the time of this report was a 36 months. Um, so as uh, the longer, longest patient that we followed this, uh, at the time of report was 68 months. So we did see relapse in 21 of a 31 uh, responding patients. So about two-thirds of the patients did experience relapse uh, needing second line or additional lines of a therapy. So median time to relapse was 18.5 months, and then the median relapse-free survival, uh, the 25.1 months. So this is an updated data from the kind of what we presented, uh, what we uh, presented last year at ASH. So what happens, and as I indicated before, that when they, they relapse after initial exposure to vimurafenib, they were able to receive vimurafenib again. And when they do, and then about 62% of the patients received the vimurafenib, and the other 28% of the patients uh, pursued alternative therapy, as listed here. Some uh, received, again, another course of a cladribin or pentostatin in combination with a rituximab, three patients altogether. Two patients received ibrutinib, and then the one patient received moxitumumab as a subsequent therapy following vimurafenib. And then the two of those patients actually on observation. So even though they, we are able to detect the relapse in the bone marrow biopsy, uh, they really didn't require therapy based on their cytopenia was not significant enough. 
So the patients who received vimirafenib uh, retreatment, which is a 13 patients, so these are the criteria. So more patients who achieved a partial response were likely to require second therapy, as kind of expected. So about 23% of the CR patients require another line of a therapy after vimirafenib monotherapy, as opposed to 77% of the patients who achieved a partial response to initial vimirafenib uh, needing a second-line therapy. And vimirafenib-free interval was median time was 14 months. So how do they do? So you know, the, most of the patients actually did respond again. Uh, so 85% of the patients achieved a response, some response that's in combination of a CR, PR, or complete hematologic response. We're less stringent in, the, in terms of the requirement for repeat bone marrow biopsies for these patients at the retreatment time. So that's the reason for CHR, complete hematologic response, for those patients who were not able to or didn't obtain the bone marrow biopsy. So this is interesting, the fact that they are, even again, they repeat a course of abimurafenib, kind of similar to how, this, uh, to how uh, our patients with heritage leukemia behave. We repeated course of the classroom pentostatin, that they are again, again gaining the response, uh, kind of suggesting the acquired resistance of abimurafenib monotherapy is a relatively rare event. Those that we have used in this in the retreatment time was variable as listed here. So most patients are receiving 480 milligram twice daily. Uh, that's those reductions usually requ uh, required by the side effects most commonly arthralgia and rash. Uh, and duration of amirafenib retreatment is median time was 9.4 months. So and when we re uh, also started retreatment, also it's unclear how long to continue amirafenib at this time after failing the three months, six, six months of a therapy. So I actually have a various duration of the patients. I do have a patient who's in amirafenib monotherapy over three years at this point, at 240 milligram twice daily, who's doing very well. And then there's another patient who I did it for one year. We stopped the therapy because he had a complete recovery of the blood counts. Uh, and the bone marrow biopsy at that time of initial, uh, the, at the end of the treatment after one year that he still had a partial response residual hairy leukemia and then he again relapsed a year later and then we restarted the vimirafenib and he responded again and now I'm continuing on the therapy. So well, we're still learning how to use vimirafenib in the retreatment setting and the total duration of the therapy. So this is a clinical course uh, kind of over time. Um, so again, the CMOS patients did respond but there are some relapses that we do see requiring second line of a therapy, additional line of a therapy. So the, the the side effects of demirafenib is real, and in the, although a vast majority are really manageable, and these are oral therapies, which is a huge plus for these patients, so zero IV exposure. So the most common side effects are rash and arthralgia, so really the two predominant symptoms that led to the dose reductions, and these are the more common ones. Again, these are quite manageable, either dose interruptions or dose reductions, or in some cases of a very short course of a steroid, the on 10 to 20 milligram a day for about a week course is usually sufficient to resolve this toxicity. Other toxicity to keep in mind is photosensitivity to so these patients, uh, which is known side effects. It's the same side effect profile that we are seeing in the melanoma patients and other cancers. So really no uh, abnormal toxicity that we have seen or no additional heme toxicities uh, with the vimirafenib in heritage leukemia patients. So we did have one acquired case of a resistance to vimirafenib, which again, as I mentioned before, the repeated course of vimirafenib, these patients were again able to retain the, attain the response again. But one patient did require a RAS mutation, K-RAS mutation, uh, uh, during the short course of the drug-free interval. And it was actually developing in a retrospect when we uh, analyzed the data toward the end of his therapy that he was already developing K-RAS mutation, and then which led to the drug resistance. But this was actually the only one case of all the anal uh, analysis we have done that we found a Resistance, uh, resistance mutation. So while we do believe that they do exist, but these are a very rare event. 
So based on that data that we actually have embarked, if the vimurafenib combination works very well in the monotherapy in the relapse setting, and then next Jackie showed the Italian data, so vimurafenib plus rituximab in the relapse setting, that these data are also are getting a much higher response of nearly 100% CR rate as opposed to 40% CR rate that we're getting uh, in the, uh, with the uh, vimurafenib monotherapy. So we actually now designed the, uh, and and doing vemurafenib plus obinutuzumab in the front line in the previous untreated hair leukemia with an idea that can we replace the chemotherapy altogether in hair leukemia patients and uh, such an early mutation, early event of BRF analysis, maybe we have an opportunity to cure hair leukemia with a zero chemotherapy exposure. So that's the idea behind this study. The primary objective of the study is to determine the efficacy as assessed by CRAs, and we are doing the MRD analysis uh, by standard by immunohistochemistry as well as BRF, uh, the digital PCR to allele burden. So the de- uh, design of the study, Vemurafen, that the patients are taking for four months, and obinutuzumab starts uh, one month after to reduce the risk of obinutuzumab infusion reaction, because based on our previous data, by one month, that we are able to eradicate most of the hair cell leukemia in the bone marrow biopsy, so the infusion reaction has been low. So I'm not, uh, so in the, uh, the inclusion criteria is listed here. So this study is open at MSK, then a Farber Yale is an ongoing study. We treated 14 patients to date, and they will present this data ash this year, so I'm not uh, able to show the details of the data slides, but I can tell you that 14 patients we treated, nine patients evaluable, and then all patients did respond in all MRD negative. So we're actually, you know, the, the, the therapy does appear to work. It's very promising therapy, so we're kind of excited about this combination. So this is a moxitumumab data that Jackie already presented, so which is, um, uh, but I'm not going to go into uh, too much details, but this is another uh, indication for therapy targeting CD22, um, that this is immunodrug conjugate with a pseudomonas toxin that's attached to CD22 monoclonal antibody. So this is definitely an option for those patients who are uh, less refractory patients, uh, chemotherapy-free options, and this is IV infusion that's given day one, three, and five, um, then going every 28 days for up to six cycles of a therapy, and 40% of these patients were able to attain a deep response. Uh, So this is also an option for our patients as well. And the hematologic recovery time, uh, which is in the paper that Dr. Kreitman uh, published in Leukemia, uh, that appears to be quite similar as well, too. So it's early recovery of the cons within four to six weeks period of the time. And then the box on the forest plot, if it's hard to see, that just to highlight that some of these patients did receive BRF inhibitors, such as vemurafenib, most common. Uh, the other common BRF inhibitor that we have used is tibrafenib. Uh, but, you know, the, about six, I think six patients out of the 14 patients that did uh, get BRF inhibitor, and then there's no difference. For instance, the response rate, whether they got a femurafin exposure prior to getting moxitumumab. So certainly this could be an option for those patients who have failed or resistant or not able to get BRF inhibitor. Adverse event, Jackie already kind of presented, so I won't go into too much details. And then ibrutinib, um, the data she also presented, so there's a lot of overlap there. So again, this is an option, but in a comparative vemurafenib uh, plus vemurafenib with a rituximab and moxitumumab, ibrutinib as a single agent hasn't uh, get as good of a response. So there are some CR p- uh, patients, about four uh, CR patients uh, in, this, uh, this, uh, in this series, but overall response was about 46%, uh, which is a little bit lower. But again, this is an option for those patients who have a probably failed or exposure to these therapies or not able to get them, uh, but this won't be, usually we don't use them as a first-line therapy, and it still is not approved therapy yet for the heritage leukemia, although it's used commonly in other disease settings, as we know. So in conclusion, the femurafenib monotherapy, uh, as we've seen in the highly effective and relapsed refractory hair cell leukemia with the vast majority achieving a response, uh, about 40% or 30 to 40% complete response rates, and those reductions are often required due to side effects such as arthralgia and rash. 
So the long-term follow-up do indicate that you know, the patients do relapse after vimeraphenib monotherapy, although they do respond as well um, to repeated course of vimeraphenib, although the total course of a duration do remain to be uh, to remain unclear at this time. We are excited about the vimeraphenib combination in the front line to see whether they could be any better than cladribine rituximab combination. So maybe we'll have a randomized study to answer that question. We're not, and it's a relatively rare disease, so I'm kind of excited to see, but uh, we are excited about the opportunity. And the moxitimumab, ibrutinib, as I mentioned, before, uh, do present an opportunity, uh, another therapeutic opportunity for these patients with the less refractory heresy leukemia. Um, this is my acknowledgement slide from the center of MSK, that I, uh, which I belong to, and the Harris Leukemia Foundation, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, who have funded our research with the Femirafinib combination therapy, too. Uh, thank you for your attention.